Winchester tackled him. Um, wrongly, but thought he was. Um, I wonder if you wouldn't find... Did anyone go back to Dryden after reading a bunch of Pope? Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm not... I'm, why am I not surprised? I'm not, but why would that be? Um, I think you would probably find Dryden a lot easier now um, because you have... You've probably read more heroic couplets in this class um, each of you has probably now read more heroic couplets in this class than any of you, than all of you together had read in all your lives. Does that seem likely? Um, are you starting to like them? Because we got more. <laughs> we got more to go. Um, not that much more, but more. Um, we're, we've, we've done, we're way, we're through most of the thicket of heroic couplets, the heroic couplets that are like horizontal trees that you have to step over or something. Um, we're getting there. Um, we're getting there. We're getting to different kinds of poetry. But, um, you know, one, if, 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 not, if this course does nothing else, if it makes you appreciate those kinds of poems, which people today tend not to, that will have been a good thing. Um, that will have, I'll, I'll put that next time as the goal of the course from the syllabus. Um, but no, are you starting to like them? Are you starting to dream in them? Uh, you probably... No, but when you read a lot um, of, of a certain kind of poetry, and especially this kind of poetry, really does kind of seize, it seize your imagination. I mean, it's like um, you might get into the mode where at least the form of the heroic couplet, the kind of... The kind of um, a strong and propulsive rhythm of it is... In, gets into your brain like a song that you don't like um, and that, that you can't stop thinking of. Um, I won't name any names because it would ruin the rest of your class. Um, or maybe you like the songs, but it would still ruin the rest of your class. Um, so there, did you not find that with her a couplet? That, you know, it's like, I went to Usedan because Usedan came kind of thing. No? All right. That's, I don't know if that's good or not. Really? Not at all? <laughs> Do you never have that experience like the night before if you stay up really late studying for an exam in poetry? Um, I used to have, when I was undergraduate, I had that experience with Shakespeare, um, which is I had this very unpleasant dream that I was reading a Shakespearean play for the exam the next day um, that I didn't know, but it was all an iambic pentameter, and I couldn't figure out at all what was going on. But what I couldn't figure out was going on in iambic pentameter. Um, now, if you start rhyming in your dreams, um, you'll be you'll be a new pope. Um, that will be good. All right. Uh, did people? So you had these papers due today, um, and you also had the Dunciad, the four book Dunciad to read. So that that must have been fun, kind of taking a break from writing the paper by reading some funny pope, and then taking a break from reading some funny pope by writing a funny paper or maybe a sad and serious and melancholy paper. Um, must have been a gas. So I thought we'd have a surprise quiz on the Dunciad. Okay, those are nice enough smiles. I won't. <laughs> so how many people actually read any of it? <laughs> any? I get four hands on any? Oh, good. And how many people finished it? <laughs> All right, and those of you who read any, by any, does that mean like the title? 
Yeah, okay, maybe we get five hands on the title. How many people have like read a complete book of the dance yet? <sighs> All right, the two people the two people not taking it for credit. All right. <laughs> that also makes a certain kind of sense. Um, why else would they be here unless they actually cared? Um, okay, well, um, what should we do then? Um, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about the Dunciad because, of course, you'll want to read it for the exam. Um, you really will want to read it for the exam. That's a prediction <laughs> that that's something you will want to do. Um, I guess, I mean, what I can, I can say somewhat reassuringly that, that yeah. Oh, you could, um, it's a little bit hard to read in this edition because it's not footnoted extensively. Um, all of Pope's notes or the Scriblerian notes are in there. Um, the, Scriblerian, um, the Scriblerian Club. Um, was a bunch of writers, um, including Pope and Swift and Gay and some others, who were very, who um, were very anti the um, uh, dullness of the age. The Dunciad is a poem against dullness. Um, they'd done a bunch of stuff before that, also, and they published um, they they published parodies and mock scholarship over the name Martin Scriblerus. Um, so Martin Scriblerus, who is sometimes mentioned in the notes to the Dunciad, um, is actually a figure who's, who's a composite figure made up of people who were having fun. Um, they wrote a learned treatise called Peri Bathos, which is about the low and uninteresting and stupidly sentimental in poetry, um, based on and a parody of Longinus's great work, which was sort of rediscovered in the 18th century, um, perihupsos, which is um, literally means about elevation in poetry, but is the standard standard title in English is on the sublime, um, and on the sublime, Longinus is on the sublime, um, is one of the great works of um, ancient literary criticism. Um, that, that one of three or four. Um, great works of literary criticism that uh, survive from antiquity. Um, and it's essentially what Longinus um, says is that there is this mode of poetry um, which blows you away. Um, his, his most famous definition of the sublime is that when you read something sublime, and for him it's something that you're reading. Uh, we talk about sublime landscapes now. That's an 18th century idea that nature could also be sublime. But originally, sublime meant an experience of literature. Um, and the idea that nature is sublime, which 18th century writers started um, analyzing, um, in particular Edmund Burke, but not only Edmund Burke, um, is the idea that you could look at something in the natural world and it could fill you with the same kind of experience of exaltation or elevation of soul that Longinus described as coming from the reading of some poetry, um, reading of some literature. So it's Longinus's definition of the sublime in a sentence is that um, the sublime is when um, in reading your soul takes a proud flight as though she herself, that is your soul herself, had written 
what she has only heard or read. Um, so that it's an experience of a kind of pride in perception, a pride in reading. Um, the exaltation is not just, oh man, this is great, but it's, um, oh man, I feel great about myself, as though my responsiveness to this um, brings me to the height that this work of literature also achieves. Doesn't It's not that, oh, Homer is really great, the Iliad is a sublime work. The sublime isn't something that applies to works, um, except insofar as there are a lot of sublime passages in it. But the sublime is always a moment in a work. It's a line, or a couple of lines, or a sentence, or a couple of sentences. Um, no work can sustain the sublime long because the sublime always appears against a against a contextual uh, against a context which serves as a kind of background for it. But when you're reading it, and suddenly something amazing strikes you—not amazingly funny, but amazingly powerful—that Longina says is what the sublime is. And then Burke will say, and Kant will say that sometimes you'll have the same experience when you see. Um, an amazing landscape, when you see a storm over the ocean, when you see the Grand Canyon, when you see um, the Alps, or when you see St. Peter's in Rome as Kant's example, um, one of Kant's examples. And in those cases, again, it's as though you're blown away, suddenly blown away by something. Um, and yet, in the very act of being blown away by it, um, you are also gladdened by that fact. Burke's use for it is that you're filled with delight, which he distinguishes from pleasure. That you're filled with delight by this because it's so amazing. It's not pleasure because you're being blown away. You're not quite um, serene. You're not in control of it, but it's delight. Um, Kant, Kant and Burke say this is true of landscape also. That sublime landscapes are different from beautiful landscapes. That beauty is where you get like lots of flowers and fields and it's and you get a kind of serenity and harmony within the beautiful but the sublime is not serene and harmonious it's often violent and on the verge of being frightening sometimes actually is frightening and yet you have an aesthetic response which is that of the sublime um, so would a person be encouraged to seek out the sublime as much as they can or could as that's a very good question um, and they're, and they're different um, people have different attitudes towards it um, the idea so something that started happening in the 18th century is people started visiting the Alps um, that is uh, towards the end of the 18th century the Alps became um, a, a, a tourist destination, um, a thing that you were supposed to see, whereas um, before that, people would visit Italy because it was the, the cradle of Western culture, or at least the, the epitome or the, the apex of Western culture, um, let's say in the 16th or 17th century. Um, and the Alps were a pain. Um, crossing them was just, was just a real pain. Um, and um, there was a change in taste which meant that suddenly they became um, an end in themselves rather than an obstacle. Um, look how amazing these things are. But then they become commodified. It's a commodity. Sure, go visit the Alps. Now you can take a cable car to the top of Mont Blanc. And people do get jaded. Um, 
So, so there is a question. I mean, you're, you're raising a very interesting question about whether you can cultivate yourself to have more sublime experiences or not when the sublime is always a surprise. That's part of it, is that there has to, um, is that to be blown away, you can't be braced or ready to be blown away. It has to come as something of a surprise. Um, so those are, those are hard questions and the, what is sometimes called the philosophical psychology of the sublime um, in, the, in the more general um, idea of philosophical psychology. Um, part of what Burke himself will say and what Longinus will say about literature is that um, what great literature will do, especially because you forget it and then re-remember it, is that it can, it can preserve that freshness. Not particular lines. That is, you can't just say, oh, this line is so sublime that every time I think of it, I'm blown away. But rather, um, I used to love this line, and then I slowly drifted away from it, as one does in life. Um, but then I came back to it, and it blew me away again. I'd forgotten how amazing it was. Um, so one um, later psychological account of the sublime is that the sublime is a return. Um, that is, it's something that returns to you and blows you away. And this, there's psychoanalytic versions of the sublime that are interested in the sublime as a return of the forgotten or of the gone away or of the repressed. Um, so so you're, you're opening a very large field of questions when you ask that. Um, again, the simplest version of it, though, is the air guitar. That is, um, if you want to know what Longinus is talking about, he's talking about when you're listening to your iPod and suddenly you get that riff that you like so much um, and you just got to play it on the air guitar. That's as though the soul, your soul is taking a proud flight as though she herself is playing what she's only listening to. Um, so if you take seriously the experience of just really wanting that moment, that air guitar moment, um, that's what Longinus really is talking about. Um, not for music, but for words. But um, as we know from Dryden, they're similar enough. They're connected enough. Um, so On the Sublime was very, very important. Boileau, whom Pope quotes a lot, um, the French critic, poet, poet critic, um, was um, uh, one of the major instigators and rereaders of the Sublime at the end of the 17th century. Um, so Pope and the scrib Scriblarians produced this parody called um, Peri Bathos on lowness in poetry, where they basically illustrate lowness in poetry by quoting um, heaps of contemporary poets um, with admiring commentary about um, just how boring and dull and um, sentimental and silly and um, hackneyed and derivative these poems are. Um, and so Perry Bathos is, is actually quite a wonderful book. Um, quite wonderful to see um, Pope and his friends going at these people. Um, obviously they weren't very happy. The Scriblarians made enemies. You were either a Scriblarian or an enemy of the Scriblarians. Um, and um, among those enemies, as I mentioned before, was Tybalt, um, who whom Pope hated because Tybalt hated Pope's edition of Shakespeare. Um, in fact, Tybalt's edition of Shakespeare is um, uh, its full title 
is um, an explanation of why Mr. Pope's edition of Shakespeare stinks. Um, and uh, so Pope gets him back um, after Tybalt publishes his version. Yeah. What was wrong with Pope's version? <sighs> One doesn't like to say anything against poor Pope, but I will. Pope was not an editor. He really wasn't. Um, Pope, um, so there's a great, I'll just tell you this. Um, there's a great line by William Empson, who's maybe the best English critic, critic in the English language in the 20th century. So for my money, his best book is a book called Milton's God, which is a defense of Milton um, and very much a satanic reading of Milton. That is, Milton is on Satan's side, not on God's side. Um, um, Dryden was the first person to actually see that. Um, Dryden calls Satan the hero of paradise lost. Um, but it doesn't become a serious a critical position till the Romantics, till Shelley um, calls Satan clearly the most heroic um, and most important figure in Paradise Lost. Um, and, and in the 20th century, William Empson is the um, critic who says that. That's not his most famous book. His most famous book is a book called Seven Types of Ambiguity, um, an unpromising title, but an utterly revolutionary book, which he wrote as an undergraduate. Um, just mention it. First, you've read Pope at the age of 21. Now you can read Empson at the age of 21. Um, but his best book is this book called Milton's God, of which Hugh Kenner, whom you may have heard of, said that contemplation of Milton seems to have unhinged Mr. Empson's mind. Um, but Empson was right and Kenner was wrong. Um, so Empson was also a poet. Um, and his poems are actually pretty good. You can find them in the Norton Anthology of Modern Poetry at any rate. Um, and Empson was partly writing against T.S. Eliot, um, who disliked Milton. Um, and Eliot basically thought that, um, famously thought, that Milton had decided that he would rather be a great poet than a good poet. Um, and that um, for, for Eliot, good meant morally good. That is, it was, it was better for Eliot to be a morally good poet, to write poems that were morally good, than to um, bet everything on being great, even if you had to be perverse in the ways that Eliot thought Milton was being perverse. Eliot didn't think Satan was the heir of paradise lost. Eliot didn't like Milton for other reasons. And Eliot makes this claim partly in um, an essay of his called Of Minor Poetry. Um, where he talks about um, why the minor poets are better than the major poets, better in the sense of good, um, and better in the sense of bringing, bringing something to perfection rather than trying something radically new, which um, may be really interesting, but is also imperfect and violent in various ways. Um, and Empson... Um, in writing um, about Eliot uh, says that he has to disagree with Mr. Eliot. They knew each other. Eliot actually liked Emerson's poetry and published some of it. Um, that he had, Eliot was a publisher. That he had to disagree with Mr. Eliot. Um, that especially when Mr. Eliot, um, with what Mr. Eliot had to say about minor poets, as a minor poet myself, Emerson says, I can assure Mr. Eliot, who was a major poet, um, that we don't feel this way. Um, so 
part of the idea is that great poets are not necessarily great critics. Um, Pope wants to claim to be, and the essay of criticism in a way is a great work of criticism, but they're certainly not great editors. Um, the kind of thing that makes you a great poet will um, often be um, an indifference to pedantic carefulness, whereas the kind of thing that makes you a great editor is absolute pleasure in um, pedantic carefulness, in um, uh, what, the, what the philosopher J.L. Austin calls flushing the coverts of the microglot. Um, that is to say, going for the tiniest little effects and analyzing them at great length. Um, so um, poets don't do that. The great poets tend not to do that. There are exceptions. Nabokov might be an exception, but he turns out to have been a terrible editor too. Um, there are exceptions to this rule, but the general rule um, seems to be that um, the talents of an editor and the talents of a poet uh, are not the same talents, and they both require fullness of mind, but your mind goes off in different directions. Maria? Well, so why were poets doing editing? Because, partly because um, most poets are um, um, absolutely loyal to the poets that they care most about. And there were a lot of editions of Shakespeare um, that people were trying to put together. There were no good editions of Shakespeare till, till the 18th century. That is, if you read Shakespeare, you read him in um, essentially copies of the first printed editions. They were reprinted. Um, but there was just all sorts of stuff that was wrong, um, that was clearly wrong. Typos and um, uncertain um, lineations. The order of the plays was wrong. Um, and as Dr. Johnson says, he did an edition of Shakespeare also, also. As he says, the great thing about Shakespeare is you can read him in the worst edition imaginable, and he's still the greatest playwright who ever lived. Um, there's a holism in Shakespeare that means that pedantic carefulness in editing him um, is, um, of course, we want it, but it doesn't matter. Um, um, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Shakespeare is Shakespeare, even if he's tattered. Um, but in the beginning of the 18th century, and you're, I can't believe the, the number of fields that are being opened today, um, uh, classical scholarship. Um, that is very careful uh, um, re-editing um, of the ancient works and um, working out um, through, through new and scientific principles of editing that people have just um, been thinking through all over Europe in order to do classical scholarship, in order to establish correctly the texts of Homer and of Virgil and of other people. Um, that's a late 17th century, um, there's a real late 17th century explosion of that. Um, and in the 18th, I mean, it's not new in the 17th century, but it's really exploding in the 17th century. And Bentley, whom I mentioned last time, the guy who did that ridiculous edition of Paradise Lost and whom Pope makes a lot of fun of in the Dunshead, um, was a great scholar of Homer. Um, then those principles, um, which are also applied to the Bible, um, it's one of the things that Dryden is talking about in Religio Laici. That is the um, fact that um, some scholarship has made questionable the established texts of the Bible. Um, 
those principles started being being applied to difficult work in English, um, Chaucer to some extent and Shakespeare preeminently. And so at the beginning of the 18th century, you have a lot of people who are publishing new editions of Shakespeare in which they um, basically try to bring Shakespeare's work into um, the kind of shape that we would now expect in a Shakespeare book in, in, in English 33A, um, like in the Norton, which you guys used. Um, and one of the reasons for this is that Shakespeare wasn't really being performed on stage except in, as I mentioned before, in often very, very different versions like Nathan Tate's King Lear. Um, so, there, so Shakespeare became more um, the province of scholars than of, um, of actors. Not that actors weren't doing Shakespearean plays, but they were doing highly modified Shakespearean plays, just like now. Um, it's very hard to see a, sh a straight Shakespearean play except on the BBC. Um, so they were doing modified versions of Shakespearean plays. And in the meantime, the scholars were trying to get exactly right the thing that was, was to be modified. And um, plus, if you were Pope and you published the Iliad and you were a famous poet and you did an edition of Shakespeare and you needed the money, um, people would buy your edition. Um, so now Pope, however... Um, it's, or let me just say, it's a, um, I cannot believe we're having this discussion, but okay. Um, it's um, a long and hotly contended question in textual editing, the extent to which an editor can rely on his or her own taste in trying to figure out um, what Shakespeare would have written. Um, so that, um, for example... Um, there are scenes in Macbeth, like the knocking at the gate at Macbeth, that is the porter who, who the gate is knocking and he says knock, 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 that a lot of 18th century people, Pope preeminently, um, thought was too low for Shakespeare. Shakespeare wouldn't have written a crappy scene like that. That's just low comedy. Someone put it in, which is true in a lot of plays, not Shakespearean plays, but in Dr. Faust's, for example, um, the comic plays or the comic scenes of Dr. Faustus are probably not by um, Marlowe. So um, Pope assumed, and that that's known for a fact that they aren't, um, or that some of them aren't. So Pope assumed that that um, someone interpolated this comic scene in Macbeth, um, and so he gets rid of it because that can't be Shakespeare. It's too low. It's too prosy. It's too ridiculous. It um, it distracts us from what's really great about this intense and, and intensifying play. Um, so Pope says that can't be by Shakespeare. Um, Thomas de Quincey, very famously at the beginning of the 19th century, he's, his most famous book, the one you will have heard of, you certainly will have heard of it when I give you the title, um, but the one you probably already have heard of is Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Um, and he was a friend of Wordsworth and Coleridge's and um, an extremely good, even great writer um, of prose. Um, but he has a famous essay called Of the Knocking of the Gate in Macbeth, where he says um, it's absolutely essential to the play. It brings your feeling of horror and of, of uncertainty and disorientation in the play to a peak at that point. Um, he calls it a syncope within the play. It's, it's almost as though your heart is missing a beat with the knocking of 
the gate. So um, De Quincey makes a very convincing argument. I mean, no one now doubts that it's Shakespeare, but De Quincey makes a very, very significant argument on the basis of taste for putting the knocking of the gate in. He doesn't say it's a basis of taste. He says, um, this is just really great. But implicit in that is um, Shakespeare really knew what he was doing. And if Shakespeare knew what he was doing, then it was Shakespeare who did it. Whereas for Pope, it's this really stinks because his taste is so non-romantic. Um, this really stinks. It can't be Shakespeare. So that's a major question of whether something is Shakespeare or not. Um, and there are a lot of the um, harder to establish plays where there are scenes that may or may not be Shakespeare. And people will at least look for evidence for views that they form on the basis of taste. There's no way Shakespeare could have written something so crappy, some people will say. Um, this isn't crappy at all. It's great. No one but Shakespeare could have written it, other people will say. Um, and then and then there are people who will say, I don't let taste, um, I don't let my own taste um, tell me whether Shakespeare um, read it or not. I'm purely scientific. But no one is. Um, ultimately, it is going to come down to taste. So one of the things that Tybalt gets Pope on is that Pope thought that um, Shakespeare probably um, was too great a poet to spend as much time punning as you can find in the plays. As you all know, Shakespeare puns at the drop of a hat. Um, and he just loves a pun. What Dr. Johnson, again, um, our secret but not so secret sharer for next for Friday's class, where you should read, I quickly add, um, The Vanity of Human Wishes and London. Those are the two Dr. Johnson poems you should read. Um, Johnson says of Shakespeare that a quibble, quibble there means pun, um, when you quibble on something, it's that you're finding ways that you can, you can find hidden meanings in it. So a quibble um, was for him the fatal Cleopatra for which he would throw away kingdoms and be content to lose them. So what Johnson says, the thing about Shakespeare, Johnson doesn't like it, but he nevertheless says it's true. The thing about Shakespeare is he could be writing the most intense imaginable scene and then a pun will occur to him and he'll just follow the pun for a while um, and ruin the scene just for doing that. So Johnson thought Shakespeare was the greatest playwright who ever lived, but that um, his propensity to adore puns um, actually ruined certain things. We, we tend no longer to think that. Um, I certainly don't think that, but, um, but it's certainly a fact that Shakespeare's proclivity for puns is something that people have noted from the start. Pope thought he would solve the problem by deciding the puns weren't really Shakespeare's, but actors who do what Hamlet complains the actors do in Hamlet, um, which is they um, uh, draw attention to themselves through kinds of ad-libbing and, um, um, and hamming it up. And so Pope essentially thought those puns were not really Shakespeare's, but they were just um, actors messing with the sublime Shakespearean text. So Pope tended to get rid of the puns. Um, Pope also tended to think that certain things written in verse that Shakespeare wrote in his very complex and um, daring and surprising blank verse, um, that verse was too blank for 
um, Pope, and he would turn a lot of those things into prose. So his edition puts in prose what most editions, including the original, put in verse. And he will also frequently um, think that a passage should be in verse that Shakespeare actually wrote in prose, because English is, it's, is already an iambic language. It's not that hard to turn verse into prose or prose into verse, especially if you're Pope and you're willing to say this passage was obviously in verse, but it's irregular, but it's clear how it should be regularized. So I will do that. Um, so Pope would often take some Shakespearean prose and turn it into unrhymed but Popean poetry. Um, and, you know, it's kind of good poetry, but it's Pope's, not Shakespeare's. So Tybalt was easily able to show that Pope was full of it when it came to editing Shakespeare, and his edition was, was um, partic which he'd been working on for a long time, was particularly offered as a critique of Pope's, although he'd been working on it before Pope put his own out. Yeah. But if yeah. you look at, like, Rape of the Rock, or essay on criticism, like, Pope clearly has a sense of humor of his own. And isn't yeah. It's above using the baser parts of poetry in order to put forward a point. So why wouldn't he allow Shakespeare that same kind of Oh, he, no, he, <laughs> and Pope will pun all the time. I mean, he puns yeah. on names all the time. Um, Dr. Clark is called a Clark, for example. Then a Clark came in. Dr. Clark. Um, but Pope has a sense of decorum. I mean, the big thing that the Restoration in the 18th century um, people didn't like about Shakespeare was that they thought he didn't keep with what the technical thing called decorum, which is comes, comes from Aristotle. Shakespeare is the least Aristotelian of playwrights. But the idea of decorum is that you should always be at the right level of language that's appropriate to the scene and to the characters in the scene. And to have a major character start um, producing low puns is to break decorum. Um, so it was, it's not that Pope um, won't be hilarious. It's that Pope won't be hilarious, for example, into the um, elegy to the memory of an unfortunate lady. Um, that just won't be funny. If Shakespeare had written that, you might have found um, funny, grim parts in it. But you won't in Pope. Um, you won't in Eloisa to Avalon. Um, there's sort of the Swiftian Pope and then there's the um, Miltonic Pope let's call him Milton isn't quite the right comparison but at any rate um, and those two don't merge in Pope those two don't mix um, but in Shakespeare they do and that's what Pope um, along with lots of other 18th century writers they were troubled by that and that was a, that, they were troubled because they thought that it was, that it was tasteless um, and that they couldn't imagine that Shakespeare would be... Well, some could. They could imagine that Shakespeare was that tasteless, and they thought um, he needed improving. That's what Tate thought, that he was a genius but a primitive. Um, those who didn't think that he was a primitive assumed that these primitive aspects of Shakespeare were foisted on him by later editors. That's also Bentley on Milton. Um, so, at any rate, they were just wrong. I mean, they were wrong, pure, and simple. Pope's notes on Shakespeare are fascinating and worth reading um, in the year you give to Pope, um, when you decide to take your Pope year, your papal year. Um, but, um, but his edition of Shakespeare, not so much. Um, Tybalt's edition is probably the single most important edition um, after the originals. 
um, Tibble's suggestions and emendations are, um, I mean, there are other very important additions. One of them is Hamner, whom Pope also doesn't like. Um, Johnson's is kind of important. Stevens's is, is important. There, um, there are a bunch of important 18th century editions, um, but Tibble's is the most important. And our modern Shakespeare, lots and lots of our line readings were Tibble's um, discoveries. That is, he figured out what was really going on. Um, he figured out what, um, how certain mistakes could systematically occur, like the one that I mentioned last time, which is ends for U's and U's for ends, which is incredibly easy to do when you're typesetting, um, because you're typesetting upside down and backwards. So it's very, very easy for a typesetter to put in an N when he meant to put in a U or vice versa. Um, 20th century editors, you know, got way, way, way down into pedantic details. Um, but the major um, discoveries of um, the major true error corrections, um, Tybalt was the most important of those. Um, so, but Pope hated him. So, so um, the first Dunciad published in 1728 is an attack on Tybalt. Um, and um, they, there was no love lost between them. Um, Tybalt was then made poet laureate in 1730. No, I'm sorry, sorry, no, not Tybalt, Sibber. When Sibber was made poet laureate in 1730, Pope was outraged. Sibber was a playwright um, and an actor and a manager. He managed his own um, company. And this then became a big thing in the 18th century. Lots of um, actors who had, who had a kind of control over their lives as actors that um, others hadn't. And Sibber was also a playwright. And um, he was a brown noser and a flatterer and quite a wonderfully um, lively both actor and writer, but uh, a huge enemy of Pope's, and Pope was a huge enemy of his. Um, they had been friends, but they broke. Um, and when he was made Poet Laureate, um, that was more ridiculous than Ted Kuzer being made Poet Laureate in the U.S. five years ago or whenever he was made Poet Laureate. Um, yeah. He's, he's not bad, actually. I thought at first that it was ridiculous, but, you know, he's, he's not a bad poet. It's just that there are 10 or 12 living American poets who are really incredible, and he's not one of them. Um, I don't think Billy Collins is either. He was poet laureate, but 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 Billy Collins, you could at least see um, that he was doing something really. You can see that he does something really, really well that no one else is doing, and that's fun and user friendly. Um, so I don't think Billy Collins should have been poet laureate either. But Ted Kuzer was basically um, uh, the Dana Joya. The things you're going to learn in this class. Um, essentially uh, reassuring the Republican establishment that he wasn't a pointy head. Um, and um, so Ted Kuzer is, you know, he's fine, um, but, but nothing beyond that. Um, so if you cared about being a poet laureate, which you would have in the 18th century, not so much in the 21st century, but you would have cared in the 18th century, the idea that Sibber was made poet laureate um, was beyond absurd. Um, and so Pope rewrote the Dunciad, including a last, uh, including a fourth book, um, replacing lot. I mean, the revisions are major, and the later Dunciad is longer than the earlier one. 
but the hero is now no longer Tybalt, who's still mentioned but only a couple of times, but Sibyr. Um, he is the hero of Dulmas. He is the, um, the person who um, is, um, uh, worships with extreme piety um, the goddess Dulmas, um, who rules and is coming to rule the entire world. And Sibyr is her um, heroic figure. Um, so, well, um, I wanted to read you, because this would give you some sense of context, um, uh, from Sibber's letter to Mr. Pope, a letter from Mr. Sibber to Mr. Pope. Um, and this is the sort of thing that Pope hated in Sibber and that the Dunciad was payback for, but this is in the context of a long argument between them. Um, so, um, Pope has essentially called um, uh, Sibber a prostitute um, because of his, um, his writing to please um, the powerful. And then Sibber tells this little story, publishes it in this public letter to Pope. That is, it's a book <laughs> called A Letter from Mr. Sibber to Mr. Pope. Um, as to the latter charge, the whore... There, indeed, I doubt you will have the better of me, for I must own, that, must own that I believe I know more of your whoring than you do of mine, because I don't recollect that ever I made you the least confidence of my amours, though I have been very near an eyewitness of yours. By the way, gentle reader, don't you think to say only a man has his whore without some particular circumstances to aggravate the vice is the flattest piece of satire that ever fell from the formidable pen of Mr. Pope? Um, so he he had a line that we saw in the um, in the imitations of Horace, where um, he says every man has his whore, um, because defend it numerous, that is their safety in numbers. Take the first ten thousand men you meet, and I believe you would be no loser if you bet a ten to one that every single sinner of them, one with another, had been guilty of the same frailty. Um, Pope quotes this um, in one of the footnotes. But as Mr. Pope has so particularly picked picked me out of the number to make an example of, why may I not take the same liberty and even single him out for another to keep me in countenance? He must excuse me then. So notice that Cibber doesn't deny that um, he spends time with prostitutes. Why would he deny it? He enjoys it. Cibber denies nothing. Um, Cibber is, is um, part of what's appealing about him. Even if you take Pope's side, part of what's appealing about Cibber um, is uh, he's hard to attack because he's fun-loving, and he admits to being fun-loving. He's a Falstaffian figure. He must excuse me, then, if in what I'm going to relate, I'm reduced to make bold with a little private conversation. But as he has shown no mercy to Kali, that's himself, why should so unprovoked an aggressor expect any for himself? And if truth hurts him, I can't help it. He may remember then or if he won't, I will, when Button's Coffee House was in vogue, and so long ago as when he had not translated above two or three books of Homer, the implication being it took Pope forever to translate Homer, there was a late young nobleman, as much his lord as mine, who had a good deal of wicked humor, and who, though he was fond of having wits in his company, was not so restrained by his conscience, but that he loved to laugh at any merry mischief he could do them. This noble wag, I say, in his usual gaiete de coeur, gaiety of heart, with another gentleman still in being, one evening slyly seduced the celebrated Mr. Pope as a wit, 
and myself as a laughter to a certain house of carnal recreation near the Haymarket, where his lordship's frolic proposed was to slip his little Homer, as he called him, at a girl of the game. So Pope was the little Homer. Um, there's probably an obscene pun there, but Pope is the little Homer, as his lordship called him, um, at a girl of the game, that is, at one of the prostitutes in the house of carnal recreation, um, that he might see what sort of figure a man of his size, sobriety, and vigor, remember that Pope is no taller than four foot six, um, then he might see what sort of a figure a man of his size, size sobriety, and vigor in verse not real vigor, just vigor in verse, would make when the frail fit of love had got into him, in which he so far succeeded that the smirking damsel who served us with tea happened to have charms sufficient to tempt the little tiny manhood of Mr. Pope <laughs> into the next room with her. So they bring Pope to this house of carnal recreation and give him some tea, and he gets hot and bothered, at which you may imagine his lordship was in as much joy as what might happen within, at what might happen within, as our small friend could probably be in possession of it. Um, so his lordship is filled with as much joy to think of Pope um, in the next room with a prostitute as, as little Pope could with his tiny manhood, um, because he's short, of course, um, could possibly experience himself. But I, forgive me all ye mortified mortals whom his fell satire has since fallen upon, observing he had stayed as long as without hazard of his health he might, I, prick to it by foolish honesty and love, as Shakespeare says, that's why he uses the word pricked, um, because he's quoting Shakespeare, but I, prick to it by foolish honesty and love, as Shakespeare says, without ceremony, threw open the door upon him where I found this little hasty hero like a terrible Tom Tit, that is a kind of bird, but not only, like a terrible Tom Tit, perchly, perch, pertly perching upon the mount of love. But such was my surprise that I fairly laid hold of his heels and actually drew him down safe and sound from his danger. My lord, who stayed stittering without, tittering without in hopes the sweet mischief he came for would have been completed upon my giving an account of the action within, began to curse and called me an hundred silly puppies for my impertinently spoiling the sport, to with which great gravity I replied, Pray, my lord, consider what I have done was in regard to the honor of our nation. For would you have had so glorious a work as that of making Homer speak elegant English cut short by laying up our little gentleman of a malady which his thin body might never have been cured of? No, my lord, Homer would have been too serious a sacrifice to our evening merriment. Now, as this Homer has since been so happily completed, who can say that the world may not have been obliged to the kindly care of Kali that so great a work ever came to perfection? Um, so basically, it's Pope was too small um, for the um, person whose charms he was attempting to enjoy, and Holly Sivert rescued him. Um, and um, he didn't fall off her and die, and his translation of Homer was therefore complete. Um, so you can imagine <laughs> that um, 
that um, Pope wasn't so pleased with this and also that he gives as good as he gets or he gives a lot better than he gets. Hence, the um, later Dunciad, the 1742 Dunciad, uh, replaces Sibber as the um, ludicrous hero, um, replaces um, uh, Tybalt with Sibber. No, 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 no. Well, it, did Sibber make it up? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I don't know that anyone has uh, anyone else has ever attested to the truth of this. It might be true because Pope actually doesn't deny it. Um, that is, you would think there's plenty that he denies. I mean, one of the things that happens in the footnotes to the um, the dun- the the uh, uh, later Dunciad um, is that. Um, Pope quotes Sibber whenever he can um, to damn him. Um, but uh, Sibber, as I say, is, is very winningly um, uh, willing to admit his own delight and pleasure um, and his own faults. And Pope quotes that kind of nastily. Um, saying, Sibber says this of himself. Um, but he, and he also quotes Sibber whenever Sibber says anything the Pope can deny or that's ridiculous, but he never quotes this. Um, so either it just means it's just so ridiculous a story that there's no point to it, or it means it's true. Um, but I don't think there's any independent um, confirmation or denial of it, and Pope himself itself doesn't seem to have denied it. Um, it's worth looking at, so when you do read um, the Dunciad, you should read um, the, if you go to page 711, um, which is um, after the advertisement to the reader, you'll see that the title page is Martinus Scriblerus, his prolegomena, and illustrations to the Dunciad with the hypercritics of Aristarchus, um, and then some other stuff which you have to page back to the very own Dunciad to read. Um, but then on that page is um, this long essay by Ricardus Aristarchus of the hero of the poem. Um, so that's a fake class bit of classical criticism actually written by Pope. Um, and in it, Pope... Um, Describes it's actually very very um, interesting and um, if you're doing Pope important because their Pope is describing the difference between a true epic and a mock epic um, and Pope's great poems are his mock epics so if you look for example um, that um, at page seven thirteen um, what he says there is um, that the mock epic. Um, it's what the neoteric critics call the parody. This is the second full paragraph. One of the liveliest graces of the little epic. Um, not the great epic, but the little epic. Um, and um, he then says, thus it being agreed that the constituent qualities of the greater epic hero are wisdom, bravery, and love. So the great epic hero shows wisdom, bravery, and love. Um, here he's thinking particularly of Aeneas and the Aeneid, um, but in general, figures like Odysseus and Hector. Um, it followeth, um, from whence springeth heroic virtue, 
from the wisdom, bravery, and love of the great epic hero, from whence springeth heroic virtue. It followeth that those of the lesser epic hero should be vanity, impudence, and debauchery, from which happy assemblage resulteth heroic dullness, the never-dying subject of this our poem. So notice that he's saying dullness will last forever. You never have to worry that dullness will not be a relevant topic for a poem. Um, it will last forever. And that in the mock epic, in the epic which, um, which castigates dullness, um, what the lesser epic hero should show, that is the parodic hero, should show instead of wisdom is vanity, instead of bravery, impudence, and instead of love, debauchery. And just um, to see how this works, what's the relation of love and debauchery? Why would, why are the, how do those three pair up? So it's easiest to see if you ask how debauchery pairs up with love. How is debauchery a parody of love? Yeah. Right, exactly. So it's the, it's, it's the degraded parody of love is debauchery. Love is um, um, absolute, you could say, commitment of soul to another person. Debauchery is um, um, uncontrollable fantasizing about ways of having sex with that person um, and with many people. Um, impudence, the relation of impudence to bravery... Um, or, or inappropriate bravery. Um, bravery turned into insultingness um, and, and haughtiness. Um, in English, the word bold sometimes, or audacious, will, will get you both of them. That is, audacious can sometimes be a good thing. You know, the um, audacious ploy by which MacArthur attacked Inchon, um, that's a good thing. But the audacity of you're saying that to me, that's a bad thing. So um, boldness or audacity show that there's a connection between impudence and bravery. Yeah, and so it's, it's being willing to talk back to an authoritative person, which, um, depending on who's describing it, can look like bravery. It's what Kent does to King Lear. Um, or it can look like impudence, how dare you, which is what Lear thinks of Kent's talking back to um, But to the extent that these are true descriptions of someone, rather than different perspectives on the same thing, um, debauchery is lust, whereas love is love. Um, impudence is um, um, inappropriate um, breaking with, um, with the proper, and bravery is um, taking the proper to um, levels that no one can require of you, but which show um, how great your self-sacrifice is. And then what about wisdom and vanity? How do they go together? Yeah, so wisdom has to have a certain kind of self-confidence. And vanity is a belief that only you are right and that everyone else is wrong. Um, so both are about... Um, a thought about what the right thing is. 
Um, but wisdom as a serious virtue requires self-confidence, but self-confidence which is open-minded. Vanity is the parody of wisdom, is a belief that no one else can possibly know the truth. So again, those, that, that's, a, that's for Pope in general, that's an interesting um, contrast um, to see the difference between what Pope thinks of serious poems, Milton especially, he quotes Milton a fair amount in the Dunciad. Milton is the great epic that the mock epics like the Dunciad and the Rape of the Lock are um, parodies of, but they're not parodies of Milton so much as parodic versions of Milton. The parodies are of the people who worry about whether someone clips a lock or not and the people who are bringing dullness um, back to Earth. So this is, it, it's, um, it's a parodic um, critical essay, and, but the parodic critical essay is because it's all in praise of the Dunciad as all the footnotes are, and of dunces as all the footnotes are, um, but it nevertheless is important to understand um, especially the relationship between the serious Pope and the comic Pope and Pope's commitment to the serious and Pope's commitment to the comic. Um, you can use it for Dryden also, who's Pope's great master and the poet in the world whom he reveres the most. Um, so it's, it's worth looking at for that. Let's go, I did want to look at um, some of Eloise at Avalor, but let's go to the end of the Dunciad since you haven't read it. Um, which is the um, uh, most important um, part of it and the most famous part of it. Um, I just want to draw your attention, since we were looking at stars and asterisks last time, um, at page 794, which is book four, line 541. Um, so as you will see at line 545, we have a whole bunch of asterisks. Um, C, star, star, H, star, star, P, star, star, R, star, star, and K star. Um, all of those, the stars are telling you how many syllables in their names because it preserves the meter. So um, in order to see the meter, it's great C star, H star, P star, R star, K. That is, there's one fewer syllable than symbol in each word because the first letters are just the consonants, but the stars are given the syllabic quantity. Everyone sees that. It's great. C star, H star, P star, R star, K. Dot, 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 dot. I am a pentameter. Um, so others, the Siren Sisters warble round and empty heads console with empty sound. No more, alas, the voice of fame they hear, the bomb of dullness trickling in their ear. Great C star, H star, P star, R star, K. Why all your toils your sons have learned to sing? So what does that tell you? Yeah, the K is king. Um, so that's a typically clever moment in Pope's part, that you can tell what the star is saving, to quote, um, saves half Newgate with a dash. Here you can tell whom the star is saving just by the rhyme. Um, so, um, and you ha but you have to go back. Um, so you see Sing and you think, oh, King. Um, the note will tell you who all the others are if you care. Um, but if you don't care, that's fine. Um, go a little farther now to line 579. Um, this is um, the goddess of dullness blessing 
um, all her children, that is, everyone who is doing well in the court of George II, um, whom Pope reviles. Then, blessing all, she says, go, children of my care, to practice now from theory repair. All my commands are easy, short, and full. My sons, be proud, be selfish, and be dull. Um, so those are, those are the three commands of dullness that he sees being fulfilled everywhere around him. Guard my prerogative, assert my throne. This nod confirms each privilege your own. The cap and switch be sacred to his grace. With staff and pumps, the marquee lead the race. So this is all the dull entertainments of the, of the upper crust. From stage to stage, the licensed earl may run, paired with his fellow charioteer, the sun. The learned baron, butterflies design, or draw to silk, or rock a subtle line. The judge to dance, his brother sergeant to call. The senator at cricket urge the ball. Um, go just to line 604, the end of her blessing. Make one mighty dunciad of the land. Make the entire country a place for dunces. More she had spoke, she would have said more, but yawned. All nature nods. What mortal can resist the yawn of gods? Churches and chapels instantly it reached. Sorry, church, church, churches and chapels instantly it reached. St. James's first for Leaden Gilbert preached, so the entire country is starting to, to nod off and to yawn. Then catch the schools, the hall scarce kept awake, the convocation gaped but could not speak. Lost was the nation's sense, nor could be found, while, long, while the long, solemn unison went round. That is, everyone is yawning all over the country. It's yawns across Great Britain. Wide and more wide it spread o'er all the realm. E'en Palinaris nodded at the helm. Do people know who Palinaris is? So he is the one... Who is he? Yes, who um, has to be sacrificed. That's the deal that Juno and um, Jupiter make, that he has to be sacrificed for Aeneas to get to Italy. And so he falls asleep while he's, um, he's Morpheus puts him to sleep while he's guiding the ship and he falls into the water. And um, is, well, brought by a current to Italy where he's then killed. Um, so in Palinaris nodded at the helm, the vapor mild, or each committee crept, unfinished treaties in each office slept, and chiefless armies dozed out the campaign, and navies yawned for orders on the main. So this is a kind of sleeping beauty moment where dullness is causing everyone, um, through the contagion of her yawn, to fall asleep all over the world. O muse, relate, for you can tell alone Wits have short memories and dunces none. Relate who first, who last, resigned to rest, whose heads she partly, who's completely blessed. What charms could faction, what ambition lull, the venal quiet and entrance the dull. So what could make all these people fall asleep till drowned with sense and shame and right and wrong? Oh, sing and hush the nations with thy song. That is because you'll make everyone fall asleep. When you produce what this epic needs, which is an epic catalog. So those of you who've read the Iliad or 
um, the Aeneid or Paradise Lost will know that it's a feature of Epic that you get a long catalog, the longest and most notorious of this being the catalog of ships in the Iliad. One book of the Iliad is entirely given over, almost entirely given over, to all the um, Achaeans who come to fight against Troy. And it goes on forever. Um, most people skim it. You shouldn't. You should read it at least once in your life because there are amazing things in it. But most people skim it. Um, people look with dread at having to read the catalog. Milton gives you a catalog of fallen angels in book two of Paradise Lost. Um, so now um, we're about to get the catalog of all the people whom Dullness put to sleep. But instead we get six stars. And then in vain, in vain, the all-compassing, composing our resistless falls. The muse obeys the power. So even the muse, he, he invokes the muse. Um, o sing and hush the nations with thy song. But the muse has fallen asleep also. In vain, in vain, the all-composing hour resistless falls. The muse obeys the power. She comes, she comes! The sable throne behold of night primeval and of chaos old. Before her fancy's gilded clouds decay and all its varying rainbows die away. So the goddess of dullness comes and before her imagination and all the beauties that imagination produces decay and its varying rainbows die away. Dullness is conquering everything. Wit shoots in vain its momentary fires, the meteor drops, and in a flash expires. So this is essentially a perennial complaint that the time of intelligence and interestingness and um, cultural um, um, depth is over. Wit, which is good, shoots in vain its momentary fires, the meteor drops, and in a flash expires. As one by one, at dread Medea's strain, the sickening stars fade off the ethereal plain. As Argus' eyes by Hermes' wand oppressed, closed one by one to everlasting rest. Thus at her felt approach and secret might, art after art goes out, and all is night. See skulking truth to her old cavern fled, mountains of casuistry heaped o'er her head. Philosophy that leaned on heaven before shrinks to her second cause and is no more. That is to metaphysical um, interest in the pedantic and technical question of what causes are. So philosophy disappears. Physic of metaphysic begs defense and metaphysic calls for aid on sense See, mystery to mathematics fly, he thought math. He thought the higher math was ridiculous. In vain they gaze, turn giddy, rave, and die. Again, notice the compression of that. Religion blushing veils her sacred fires, and unawares morality expires. Nor public flame, nor private dares to shine. Nor human spark is left, nor glimpse divine. Lo, thy dread empire chaos is restored. Light dies before thy uncreating word. So it's the opposite of Genesis. God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's creation. But now 
we have the opposite of that. Dullness taking over the universe, drowning and destroying it. Light dies before thy uncreating word. By hand, great anarch lets the curtain fall, and universal darkness buries all. So that's a kind of serious ending, despairing ending. Um, Pope thinks that the great age of culture is over and that what's been replaced is is dull status-seeking, that nothing interesting is happening. When you hear TV called a a great wasteland, um, that's a 20th century version of what Pope is saying in the 18th century. at any rate, let's, uh, we have five minutes, so let's go to Eloisa de Abelard. Um, here in particular, I think that you can um, think about some of the issues um, that have to do with the relation of debauchery to love. Um, for example, the relation, you could say, of the, of the greater to the lesser epic, the true epic to the mock epic, done in a really serious way in Eloisa to Abelard, which, um, as I say, I hope you found a very moving poem. But if you go to page 257, I guess let's just look at this moment. Um, it's Pope shows extraordinary, I think, psychological acuity there in his depiction of her. So go to um, around... Uh, start, start at the top of the page. Um, yet here forever, ever must I stay, she says. Here being the convent to which she's gone um, after she and Abelard have been separated um, and Abelard has been castrated. Um, Abelard was actually present when she um, took her vows and entered the convent. Um, yet here forever, ever must I stay. Sad proof how well a lover can obey. That is, um, you ask me to do this and I will do it. Death, only death can break the lasting chain. And here, even then, shall my cold dust remain. Even after I die, here's where I'll be buried. Here all its frailties, all its flames resign and wait till tis no sin to mix with thine. So my dust will lose its frailties and its flame and its flame until there's no sin in my dust mixing with yours. Not as living people having sex, but as dead people who really are dust. And then she, she addresses herself. Ah, wretch, believed the spouse of God in vain. So people think that as um, a woman in this convent, as a nun, I'm supposed to be the spouse of God. But that's not true. In vain believe to be that, because I am confessed within, I know within myself, that I'm the slave of love and man. I can't get away from the love that I feel for him, that I feel for you. Assist me, heaven. But whence arose that prayer? Sprung it from piety or from despair? So she says, I love Abelard. Help me, heaven. And then she questions herself. But 
Did my very desire to get help from heaven, did that come from piety because I really wanted heaven to help me? Or from despair, despair over Avalon? I don't even know. Um, even here, where frozen chastity retires, love finds an altar for forbidden fires. So even here in the convent, I feel these forbidden fires for Abelard. I ought to grieve, but cannot what I ought. I mourn the lover, not lament the fault. So she's full of sadness, but for the wrong reasons, she said. I view my crime. So it is a crime, she can see it. But kindle at the view. But it gets me all kindled with love again. Repent old pleasure, that's good, and solicit new, but yet I want more. Now turn to heaven, I weep my past offense. Now think of thee and curse my innocence. So I think about what I've done, and weep it to heaven, but as soon as I think about it, I think of you, and curse the fact that this has happened to us, and that I allowed it to happen to us. Of all affliction taught a lover yet, to sure the hardest science to forget. So the hardest thing for, that anything a lover has to go through is to forget. How shall I lose the sin, yet keep the sense and love the offender, yet detest the offense. So that's um, doctrine that you love the sinner, hate the sin. But for her, the problem is the sin is loving the sinner. Abelard is a sinner. She does love them. So how can she um, hate the sin when she's supposed to love the sinner and the sin is loving the sinner? Um, how the dear object from the crime removed. Think of Abelard without thinking of him in the wrong way. Or how distinguish penitence from love. Um, so I think, again, we, we should, we'll end with Pope there. But I think that's a very deep question. It's psychologically um, very profound. Um, and it may continue to be surprising. I mean, Pope said his greatest as a comic poet. Um, and yet he's very, very great as a serious poet, too, um, especially in a poem like Eloise and Abelard. And what a poem like that should tell you is that there's great psychological depth even in his comic poetry, or at least that thinking about the comic and mock issues that he thinks about is serious thinking and leads him to psychological depth. It's not just paradox and antithesis, but it's the consequences for the human soul of the fact that we live in a paradoxical and antithetical world um, that Pope is so good at thinking through. Okay, um, Dr. Johnson, for Friday, if you haven't handed in your papers, now's the time. <laughs>